we are going to talk about today uh, what to do or how to confront a friend. So if you would like to slip out, now is your chance. Uh, no judgment here. I get it. Cracker Barrel is open. And so if you, need to, if you need to make adjustments to your morning schedule, I get it. For those of you who have, who have been here the mornings that I have been able to share over the last two or three times, maybe you're sitting there going, yo, all right, every time this dude gets up here, he goes after something sensitive or, or awkward, or if it seems that way, uh, it's because it's true. Uh, for whatever reason, the calendar shakes out where uh, the, the Sundays, uh, I won't say it's Jason manipulating the calendar to make me have to do this, but, uh, but for whatever reason, there been, I've, I've preached on anxiety, on bitterness, on patience, and now confronting a friend, and I'm 27. What could go wrong? <laughs> and so either, either way, I will tell you, this week has kicked my tail as I've studied the Lord's uh, word and as I've kind of, kind of just, just basked in a lot of this. And I hope today that you'll be able to glean even a little fraction of the, the things that I learned over the course of the past week or so of, of study. Here's just lay the land, what, I, what I'm not trying to accomplish today. What I'm not trying to accomplish today is to, to, to have evaluated the situations in your life and to give you self-help tips that will just kind of help you navigate hard conversations. Uh, I'm not interested in opening my office hours up for you to come by for mediation or for some of you intervention. Um, I, I'm not interested in, uh, in giving any sort of psychological advice or help. I will leave that to Dr. Phil. I am not a professional when it comes to some of this stuff. And this is also not meant to be heard today. What I... What I don't want you to hear today is how to start and win an argument with somebody. Dale Carnegie wrote a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I'm hoping this message today is not how to lose friends and isolate people. Really not interested in that being the major takeaway. And ultimately, the end goal of this morning is not for at 10.30 in this service or at noon in the next hour uh, for us to have sent out a bunch of Barney Fifes into the parking lot where you're going to go and start patrolling other people's lives and stirring up their Kool-Aid. I'm not interested in equipping you for the task at hand of just policing everybody around you. But I do think that if you and I live long enough, and some of us have already experienced what it's like to have to confront someone in sin, when someone's taken a path that is detrimental to their, their, their lifestyle and requires intervention, it's something someone close to us has taken on, a behavior or a, a mindset that is fundamentally out of alignment with God's word. When someone we love is, that we're, we're burdened for and broken over has taken a direction that we're so concerned with, it's going to lead to destruction. And there's this incredibly awkward moment that I love in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 is where it will be this morning, verses 11 through 14. One of the more awkward moments in the ministry of Paul um, and uh, I, I think there's a lot we can learn from it. And as you're turning there, let me catch you up on where we are in the book of Galatians. This is a letter to the churches in Galatia, and uh, aptly named. And, uh, and so Paul and, and, and Peter and James and John and Barnabas, among others, have kind of formed this uh, church planting team, if you will. They're, they've decided to go out and, and, and make the name of Christ known. And they've formed this alliance together. And they've decided, you're going to go minister to these folks you're going to go minister to these folks because of your history and background. They'll listen to you. I'll take this group. And they've just kind of divided all of this up in the first chapter and in the first part of, of chapter two. Uh, and, and these were 
primarily uh, Jewish men, but there were some Gentiles, some non-Jews involved in this group of people. Their mission to reach both Jew and Gentile. And some of these men uh, had come along to the movement after the resurrection of Christ. And others were actually disciples of Christ himself. And if they knew anything about the heartbeat of Jesus and had watched him at it for any length of time, they would understand that Jesus had a way of intentionally reaching across party lines, as it were. In Matthew chapter 8, he healed Gentiles who were possessed by demons. In Matthew 15, he healed a Canaanite, a Gentile woman's daughter. In Luke 17, he talks about how he, it talks about healing 10 lepers, one a Samaritan, and he notes, Jesus notes, the Samaritan's the only one that came back to thank him. John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman is the sole audience member in one of the greatest dialogues in human history where Jesus tells her that Jews and Gentiles, all, all men will worship in spirit and in truth. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus himself declaring that he will draw all men to himself. Dr. Andrew Rogers saying all means all and that's all that all means. There's this history, this, this, this precedent that Jesus had set of reaching across and unifying. And therefore, because of that, these men were charged with reaching all people. There was no division. In fact, that's one of Paul's primary points throughout many of his letters. There is no division. We are all. Christ died for all. And so because of Jesus' teachings and examples, that was the heartbeat. And we pick it up in verse 11 where, where the, uh, the, the, the fun starts. And it says, but when... Cephas, or, or Peter, don't ask me how that, how that works, I, I don't know, but I know it's the same person. It's maybe like William and Bill, like where'd the B come from? Um, and so when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him, I mean Paul, to his face, because he stood condemned. That word for condemned there, meaning literally had done wrong. For prior to the coming of some men from James, these would be Jewish men, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision or, or Jews. And the rest of the Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles... And not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In other words, modern translation would be, how do you expect to have any influence with this group of people if you were so wildly inconsistent with who you are when you were around them? How do you expect to make any influence with this group of people if you're wildly inconsistent with who you are when you are around them? And as soon as I say that, in that way, maybe for you, a well of emotion stirs up, right? Maybe for you, you're just thinking immediately of somebody you want to send this to. Somebody that, oh man, I wish they were here today. I'll have to send them the, share it on Facebook, send them the link or give them the podcast or whatever. And that's fair. And maybe for you, you're, close, or you're, you're looking for the closest exit going, yo, I did not come in to get pounced on like that. Uh, I Cracker Barrel sounding better and better by the minute. Uh, and I understand that too. And maybe for you, as, as you hear it said that way, it, it gets hard to breathe. Maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit, maybe the uh, elbow of the spouse that just shot, shot directly into your ribcage. Um, but either way, I hope you can relate with this. And I think there are several things just in these four verses 
that we can glean from when it comes to con- confronting friends, people that we love, that we care about. The first thing that I want us to notice is who does Paul confront? Who? It matters. Who did Paul confront? Paul did not confront lost people. Paul didn't confront those that did not subscribe to the ways of Christ. Paul didn't go after anybody who had not signed up for um, this way of thinking. Why? Because Paul knew that lost people are going to act lost. Paul knew that typically when people don't subscribe to a certain way of thinking, they, they, don't, they don't place themselves under the authority of Christ, typically they're not very concerned with looking like him. Paul doesn't go after those not walking with Jesus. Who does he go after? He goes after Peter. Peter, the brother. The man that he loved, the man that he had served with, the like-minded individual, the believer, the, the brother and the friend with whom he had developed and worked on a deep relationship. Oftentimes, as we walk this life, um, we encounter those who will say things, who will do things, who will maybe even represent things that are so far from the ways of Christ. Seems like it's becoming more and more every single day where we encounter these things from certain people. And I think as we consider our roles, our response, not a reaction, a response, our response to all of that, I think it's an important question to ask. Our first concern should always be, does this person walk with Jesus? If I'm, if I'm, if I'm burdened enough to confront First question, do they, do they walk with the Lord? Do they know Christ? I mean, it, it, do we start there before I confront a behavior? Do I start with, hey, are you like me? Have you, have you trusted Jesus? And then the second question beyond that is, do I have the relationship, the sweat equity to be able to step into your life? To, to be able to, to, to cross the line for a second and help you Along, Paul knew this, and I think these questions are incredibly important to, to, to ask, to some things to diagnose. Before we go after the actual confronting, I think it's important to realize that it matters who we choose to confront. How we do it will depend on who we do it with. The second question, when did Paul confront? Very simply, when? Did Paul confront? Verse 13 says, The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away. Even Barnabas carried away by their hypocrisy. Peter's decision, his hypocrisy had gone viral, as it were. And because of his leadership position in the ministry at that time, many others would kind of follow his lead. And so if he made this decision to step away from the Gentiles as soon as the Jews showed up, to be someone that he wasn't going to, or that he wasn't, and be a different person in front of this group and a different person in front of that group and to, to associate with these people until other people show up and then I'm out. When, when he did that, other people followed it. John Trapp said the sins of teachers are often the teachers of sin. The sins of teachers are often the teachers of sin. Verse 14, but when I saw, here it is, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So when did Paul put his foot down? When did Paul decide, okay, enough is enough. I'm gonna speak my mind. I'm gonna say what's on my heart here. When was that? Not any other place than when the truth of the gospel 
was at jeopardy. A right understanding of who Jesus is, a right understanding of how you come to him and who can come to him. When all of that gets a little bit muddy, the waters are now unclear, and people are starting to get a little bit confused about the mission, that's when Paul said, hold on. Let me correct this. I think it's important to notice what Paul did not do. Paul didn't confront Peter over differing of opinions. It wasn't about a preference. Paul didn't think that Peter should have taken a different road to Samaria, right? He didn't think that this was, ah, I wouldn't do it that way, I'd go this way. It wasn't about a financial decision that Peter had made that he just didn't think was wise. It wasn't about Peter's parenting style. It wasn't about a different opinion on worship styles. Hello. Peter's wife wasn't passive aggressive to Paul's wife. It wasn't a spillover from a Facebook argument. They didn't disagree over political ideologies. It had nothing to do with opinions. This is the truth of the gospel that was at stake. And, and if I just can be totally honest with you for a second, with so much happening in the world today, it seems like the volume just kind of getting turned up a little bit on a lot of different issues. A lot of different things that are coming at us for maybe the first time or maybe first time in a while or maybe we've never seen it at this magnitude. And I think the easiest thing for us to do is for us to misalign some of our priorities. I'm just going to be honest with you. I think it's possible that as that pressure continues to pour in, as the water pours into the boat and we begin to, to, to feel the weight of it, I think it's possible that we can get things elevated into positions in which they never belonged. There's a term for this in the corporate world. It's called mission creep. Mission creep. Jim Hoagland defines it as the gradual or incremental expansion of an intervention, a project, or a mission, listen, beyond its original scope, its focus, or its goals. Essentially, it's when an organization begins to take on tasks and missions that take its focus away from the very reason that it was created in the first place. And I think this can be true for the church at times, specific to these conversations and how we handle disagreements, quarrels, and hard situations. You see, I think we start out totally focused. I do. I think, I think we start out well-intended. I think ultimately, you know, we, we, you and I fundamentally understand the call before us to share Jesus, make disciples. Share Jesus, make disciples. Share Jesus, make disciples. We just have it burn into our brains, all the scriptures that we know about of our mission before us as a church, as a believer, as a follower of Christ. But then as the volume gets turned up, pressure starts to come in and we start to take on these other things that, that are not inherently bad things, but they're things that are going to take up some time and some energy and some effort that we really can't afford to forfeit. And so it might look like share Jesus, make disciples, promote social justice issues at every chance you can. Share Jesus, make disciples, be as politically correct as possible. Hold on. Share Jesus, make disciples, defend and promote conservative values. I lose you. Share Jesus, make disciples, save America. You know, the church was not created to save America from agendas. The church was created to point people to Jesus. None of those things, inherently bad things, 
None of those things, horrific things to pursue or to be concerned with, but sometimes those things specific to how we deal with others can, can consume us and, and can take us away from the very reason that we were created in the first place. What we initially set out to do, or better yet, what we were called to do. I don't mean to intentionally stir anything up, I, I don't, but it's no secret that throughout human history, Political issues have been the most controversial of them all. Wars, conflicts, all sorts of civil issues stemming from a differing of political views. And I believe it's probably the point of tension with many people in the room today. I know at times for me that's true. And I know you're thinking right now, how did we get over here? But I think it's important because every one of us is going to deal with this. C.S. Lewis knew this, one of my favorite authors in all of history. And he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters, essentially written from the position of a, a veteran demon, his journal entries, his letters to a young demon teaching him how to tempt man. Fascinating read, obviously fiction, but the, the points that he makes are incredibly eye-opening of how the enemy gets into the mind. And he says these words in one of the, the chapters. Let him begin by treating the patriotism as a part of, of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the partisan position. Once you have, listen, once you have made the world an end and a faith a means, you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. Friends, all I'm saying is if we're not careful, we can find ourselves so far in the weeds on issues that if we were to back out 30,000 feet and look through an eternal lens, are not worth splitting over. The relationships that get cost, that are on the chopping block over things that are really secondary issues, that is, that will fail to realize that the house is on fire, people are dying and going to hell, the house is on fire, and we're concerned with sweeping the porch. We can become totally blinded to the real issues, the truth of the gospel. Here's what Paul knew. The truth of the gospel and all men coming to know Jesus. Paul picked his battles. He chose carefully through an eternal filter to decide what mattered. Now, as soon as I say that, I know I may have lost some of you in the room. I, I don't mean to stir up controversy, but I think it's important. And if you have taken issue this morning with what I've said, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, and so my email address, I want to make myself available, is brian at clearview.org, B-R-I-A-N at clearview.org. I'd love to, to meet you over email and be able to talk. I just want to make myself available to you. I do all I can. No, but seriously, I, I, it's not my intention to get political. You know that I, I don't have any desire to be, do that on this stage or really in most conversations that I, I find myself in. But I, and I need you to know that I'm certainly not minimizing anything happening. Lord knows there are things that do and should concern us. And it's not that I don't care about those things. I don't know if you know this. My livelihood depends on some of these things, quite literally. 
It's not that I don't care. It's not that I, I'm naive. It's not that my, my favorite, that I'm just not connecting the dots. It's not that at all. It's just that Jesus talked a whole lot about healing a sick world. He never mentioned Washington. Never once did the path to hope go through D.C. It came through this building, 537. That's who it came through. That's where, it going. It's, it's where it's going, coming from. And so all I'm saying, friends, is that while these things should concern us, they should never consume us. Concern us, for sure. But the second that it begins to consume us, the enemy would love nothing more than to make that the issue. Don't preach Jesus. Deal with this instead. Don't get involved in that. Don't, don't steer people that way. Steer them a different way. All I'm saying is that one thing is primary and one thing is secondary. And at the end of the day, we have been given one task, one mission, one calling. And maybe, just maybe, if we were to stay focused on that mission, specific to our conversations and how we deal with others, maybe the other missions would take care of themselves. Why? Because we're sharing Jesus. We're making disciples. It's never been more important for us to stay the course, friends. Critically important to choosing our battles. Paul knew this. Paul understood. I'm sure Paul and Peter had disagreements before. Paul was a pretty opinionated guy. Oftentimes writing very frustrated. But he knew when to pick his battles. He knew what was worth it. He measured it out as to what is eternal. Is the truth of the gospel really at stake here? Is, is this the hill to die on. And then lastly, I want us to see why. Why did Paul confront? We've talked about who, we've talked about when, and then why. Here's the heart of it, and here's where we get into the nitty-gritty a little bit. Here's, here's where if you haven't listened yet or if I've lost you, please give me another 10 or 15 minutes and we're done. Why did Paul confront? I believe that Paul knew Peter. Paul knew, and this was the same Peter who told Jesus not to go to the cross, where Jesus famously told him, get behind me, Satan. You think you've had a bad day? Jesus calling you Satan? Rough Thursday. St. Peter, who Jesus rebuked for cutting off the ear of the soldier in the garden. The same Peter who denied Jesus three times on the days of his crucifixion. He knew this is the Peter that has all the dirt, right? But he also knew this is the same Peter whom Jesus called specifically and personally to be part of his earthly ministry. The same Peter who Jesus said was the rock whom he would build his church upon. You see, above everything else, Paul believed in Peter. And he fundamentally believed that Peter was better than this. He was better than this. He knew better and could do better. I've said it this way. Paul addressed Peter's failure because he believed in Peter's future. He addressed Peter's failure because he believed in Peter's future. And for you Bible scholars out there that are already trying to, to figure out in your head, okay, well, how do I deal with the tensions around this conversation of passages about judging others and, 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 and let, let not, you, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. And, and when looking at that text, that's the popular one. When looking at that, man, a judge makes a decision that is final, typically. You know what it takes to overturn that? Another judge's decision. Right, like it's a final, what that judge, what he or she says goes. And that's not what Paul was doing here. Paul was not a, a judge, he was a counselor. 
a mediator. His, his, his intention was to right the wrong, not to punish it. The goal was not restitution, it was reconciliation. Or maybe the passage where we read about where the adulterous woman is brought out into the public square and Jesus says, let you who without sin cast the first stone. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, that's only an issue if your intention is to throw a stone. But if your intention is to be helpful, to love, to encourage, to support, and to make someone look more like Jesus, that's a much different conversation. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us himself to go to the person if there's a sin to speak of. And he wasn't asking. This is instructive. And it's ultimately, I think, prescriptive. Jesus knew this would be the healing solution for a lot of different issues. And I think that he knew the important role that accountability would play in the life of the believer. And ultimately of the church. Accountability being a critical step in the discipleship process and the development of the follower of Jesus. And whether we like it or not, friends, this is not something that we get to ignore. You know, every, every so often there's passages that you read, you're just like, I'm going to pretend I didn't read that one. Right? Like, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'll just, I'll just go over to John 3.16 again and we'll, we'll go from there. But we don't get to ignore this one. No matter which end of the conversation you're on, maybe you're sitting here knowing there's a friend that you need to go have a conversation with over lunch or uh, over coffee or, or in their home. Or, or maybe the harder thing, that you're the one that has been confronted or needs to be. Much harder situation. But either, either side of that, this is something that is imperative. The mission critical that we understand. Because biblical community depends on it. So what? Why does this matter? What, 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 what role should I have in this? Why should I take on this burden? Right? Well, it's the, uh, why should I add this onto my plate? I've already got a lot going on. Why, why do I need this part of it? In Proverbs 27, we read a very familiar text that you've probably heard or seen printed on a t-shirt or something uh, that is a a pretty popular um, image for biblical community. And it says this, says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, you're not going to believe this, but I didn't have any iron rebar hanging around my house, Um, not really in the construction field. Uh, Well, I kind of am, it's just a different kind. Um... But I did have some spoons, okay? Spoon made of stainless steel, which is, a one, is 99% iron. So you're just going to have to give me the 1%, okay? We're just going to walk it out. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna count this, okay? This spoon is somewhat strong, right? It, it can withstand some, some pressure. It goes through the dishwasher and can withstand the heat of the dishwasher. It, it, it serves a purpose, in my house, that purpose is scooping Reese's Puffs up into, out of a bowl and into my mouth. But it has some strength to it. But as soon as I began to put some pressure on this spoon, put it through some things it was not designed to do, twist it in some ways that he wasn't, wasn't really prepared for, put it through circumstances that are testing it, what happens? can't handle it. It breaks. Okay, so go with me here. We're in Williamson County. If I've learned anything, um, yeah, appearance is important here. I'll say it that way. So what if we make it look stronger? Put some tape on it. A little bit more durable, right? It's, 
it got a little bit of cushion to it. You can't hear it as loud anymore. And, you know, it, it adds some stability to it. It looks like it's got it all together, right? It looks like surely it's, it's not going to break, right? It'll withstand a little bit more. And while it may be a little bit more difficult, it may take a little bit more pressure this time, eventually it breaks. You know, in studying metals, which is something a student pastor does often, you want to know how you change the level of strength of a metal? You put it through fire. You turn the heat up. You change its environment, and you make it probably really uncomfortable if spoons had personalities. Really difficult. You put it through circumstances um, that, that it, was, it, it was not meant to go in alone and that ultimately it was not meant to withstand on its own, but why? To strengthen it. You see, when you put a metal through fire, listen to me, it changes the composition of the metal. And friends, as we have these conversations with each other and we push each other in biblical community, the Lord is wanting to use that fire to change the composition of us of our hearts. He doesn't just want us to look stronger, to look like we, we, we have it all together, to, 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 to be out there and, and, and doing our thing and, and giving the appearance that everything is fine. No, he actually wants to get on the inside to, to do what it takes to, to, to make us actually stronger. And we've got to be willing to have these conversations Biblical community depends on it. It is literally how we become more like Jesus. There's an interstate town about 20 miles east of Memphis where I grew up, and it's a town called Arlington. And in the middle, aptly named, is Arlington High School, really creative. In 2010 or 11, somewhere in there, I was in high school at Arlington, and my church had gone through a, uh, a, a for those of you who grew up in Southern Baptist heritage, uh, uh, revival. Uh, it was old-fashioned, and it, was, it, it had lasted two weeks at our church. And the primary emphasis on it was prayer. I know that's a pretty broad term, but for us as teenagers, we took it as, what can we do to begin to pray for our circles? And so about the group of four or five of us that were, uh, were, were involved at both our church and at Arlington uh, decided that our response to this, this movement of God, this conference, this revival, was to, uh, to, to meet every single day after school for a month and pray over our school. Walk the halls, prayer walk our campus, pray for teachers, administrators and our students and all the different things going on. We, we committed to that for a month. And so we thought we'd start the following Monday. And that Monday I got held up after, as fate would have it, I got held up in one of the classes. I had to redo an assignment. Nobody has a joke for that. Uh, had to redo an assignment. And uh, so I, I was late to it. I ended up missing it. But I walked out of the classroom just in time to see this group of students, four or five of them, finishing their prayer time thought, man, how cool is this? And then I looked over the other direction, and I saw sheer horror on the face of about another four or five students looking like they had seen a ghost. Like, what 
is happening? They're looking for snakes in lockers. Like, what is going on, right? They're totally freaked out. And it was in that moment that I just sensed the Lord calling me to pray in my truck alone by myself instead of praying in public, right? That was the conviction I had was, you know, I'm just not going to be a part of this. Like my 16-year-old impressionable, uh, insecure mind was like, yo, I'm not signing up for um, being labeled a freak in my school, right? Like I have a status and a a reputation to uphold, and I am not interested in being labeled some sort of a creep. So I blamed the Lord, and I said, man, God just put it on my heart to just, you know how you're supposed to pray in secret instead? So we're just going to do that instead, right? Worked for me. And so a couple days go by, and I've just decided I'm, I'm not doing this. Like, I, I, I don't, I'm not interested. I, and this girl named Hannah, who's part of our group, came to me at lunch on a Wednesday, a couple days later. She said, hey, I've noticed you hadn't been at the prayer thing. Are you, are you still coming to that? What's, we've missed you. What, what's going on? And I, I'm pressured at that point. And so I, I tell Hannah, hey, I, you know, I just started thinking about it. And I saw how uncomfortable people got. And, you know, I just... You know, I don't, I don't think that, that God would want us to make people uncomfortable because then they're going to think Jesus is weird. So I think we should probably just not do this. Just making it up, right? I'm trying to figure out how to not say I don't want to be, you know, caught, caught in this crowd, right? And then Hannah looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. Simple, sweet, humble. And she said, hey, I get it. But there are people in our school, our friends, that are going to die and go to hell. And I think that's as uncomfortable as it gets. Thanks, Hannah. (laughs) Awesome. God bless your ministry. Uh, Wonderful. And so I did what any 15-year-old, 16-year-old is going to do. I show up the next day. Uh, It was as awkward as build. Uh, It was as weird as promised. And it was as uncomfortable for me as I had expected. But what I didn't know was that there was a couple of guys from our basketball team that were waiting on somebody to go. So I went because of Hannah punching me in the gut. But then the following Monday, a couple more guys from the team came. And then after that, a few days later, a couple of the football players from the FCA group started coming too. And and if you know anything about high school, um, if you see a bunch of football players, look behind them, typically there's cheerleaders. And so they started coming too. Month goes by, at the end of this thing, there's over 50 people praying for our school. Again, I, was, I can't take credit for that. I was the, the punk who bailed out as soon as I thought it'd be weird. I was in town a few years ago, a couple years ago actually, and I, I went by, I just had some time, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go see some of my teachers. Uh, at the end of the day, I'll just run in and, and see who I see. I got some coaches there that I wonder if they're, they're around and can catch them for a minute. I won't bother. I'll just wait till they're done for the day and I'll slip in. And so I, I wait, students are dismissed, and I start walking through the hall, check in at the office, wave to the ladies in there, turn the corner to go down the hall towards Coach Williams' room to see him. And as I round the corner, right in front of my eyes, it's a group of students touching lockers. praying for their school. You see, I didn't know it, but that group never stopped meeting. I graduated. I moved on. But it kept getting passed down. If you walk into Arlington High School this week, more than likely you will see at the end of a school day, students praying for their campus. You walk in that building 
You'll see students going to the Lord on behalf of their friends, their teachers, and asking the Lord to do something crazy in that school. But that never happens without a really hard conversation initiated by Hannah. It never happens if Hannah just kind of decides, it's just too weird, I'm not going to say something. You see, Hannah knew what Paul knew about Peter. She knew it about me. She knew that I, I was better and could do better. She cared about me enough to call me out. I said, man, you committed to this. The Lord wants you to do this, and you're, you're bailing. You're not, you're not involved in it. You're not, you're not doing it. It doesn't happen without Hannah doing the difficult thing, the hard thing. Embracing the awkward, challenging me to my very core, uh, to live more like Jesus. Hannah believed in me. And it made all the difference. Hebrews 10 comes to mind, and we're done here. Verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. So what would happen if we embraced this idea together? What would happen, church? If we took Jesus at his word, if we actively looked for ways to stir one another up, if we didn't shy away from difficult conversations with those that we know can do better, those who, who know the Lord, who we just need to go to and confront for the, for the sake of their future, not in division, not in hate, not in accusatory mode, not in any sort of an attack, not in arrogance or, or malice, but in love. Hey, man, I see this in you. I see this in your family. I, I, I want this for you. And we come at it from a position of grace. We receive it when it comes to us as a position in a position of grace. What if we cared enough about each other and ultimately about the mission before us to do the hard work of sharpening each other, of allowing ourselves to be sharpened, biblical community taking root in these conversations. In this world, friends, there is a whole lot of hurting people who need a church more than they realize. And it's this kind of work, this kind of stuff that helps us to be the church the world needs. Calling each other to a higher place, higher ground, as our team likes to say here. Pushing each other. Man, being willing to do the hard thing for the greater good of knowing that, man, this, this, the kingdom requires it. Jesus meant it. And so we go in a posture of humility of grace, of honor, and of obedience. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world. Is sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.